The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come here today and know that as your sheep, we have a good shepherd. And that as sheep, we can trust in you, knowing that you will guide us, that you will care for us, that you will give us all that we need, that you will protect us from harm, and that you will bring us safely, securely to your home, which is in heaven. Lord, thank you that we don't have to be the shepherd. Thank you that we don't have to be smart enough to make it there. Thank you that we don't have to protect ourselves. Thank you that we can admit that we are weak and frail. And that we can look to you and find all that we need. Lord, thank you that when we open your word, it reminds us not of of the duty that we have to complete but of the grace that has been offered to us. Father, I pray this morning as we get to look at your word and we get to look at this reality of you as a good shepherd, help us to humble ourselves and recognize the gift that that is. Help us to better recognize the Savior that we have. And Lord, in all things, help us just to trust and better rest in the finished work of Christ. In your son's name, amen. Well, this morning, you can find two places in Scripture. Um, I would ask you to find John 10. We're ultimately going to get there. It's going to take a while, but we will get there in the sermon. But then you can also find Ezekiel 34. This is going to be an interesting sermon. This is an introduction to a mini-series that we're going to have in the Gospel of John, and that mini-series is going to be over John chapter 10 and the Good Shepherd. Uh, but this, is, this sermon is definitely the introduction to all of that. So you might for a moment wonder, when are we actually going to get to John 10? And we will, but I first have to tell you a story. It's a story that I hope you know really well, but it's a story that it is my conviction that as believers we need to be reminded of over and over and over again because we, it, because we constantly take our eyes off of this story. And this story is the story of the Bible. It's a story that I love. As a pastor, I love that I get to, to stand up here every week and I get to tell you about my favorite story. That is the story of the Bible. And I get to look at the details of individual elements of that story. Well, I want to start this sermon by looking at this story at a macro level. The story of the Bible has actually been one of those things that people have um, discussed what the point of that story is. If you look throughout history, if you look through certain theological traditions, if you look at individuals, if I were to ask them what is the story of the Bible or better yet, what is the point of the Bible, various people have said various things. 
Like some have said, well, the point of the Bible, the point of all 66 books of the Bible is the holiness of God, which you would think, oh, that's a great answer. The holiness of God is, is, is paramount. Isn't that the point of the Bible? Well, I would say the holiness of God is in the Bible, but it's actually, that's not a large enough theme to encompass all that is in Scripture. Some people have said that the point of the Bible is the salvation and the restoration of the nation of Israel. Where the reason that we have this is to, is to describe for us what happened to Israel and then is, is in the New Testament is describe for us how Israel is going to be redeemed from their foolishness. Well, that's, I don't think that's the point of the Bible either because I don't think that's large enough. So what do I think the point of the Bible is? Well, I'll make it simple. I think the point of the Bible... The reason that God gave us all 66 of these books, the reason that he started back in Genesis and gave us all the way through Revelation was so that you and I might understand redemption. That the reason that all of these stories are here, all these people are here, all this theology is here, all this information is here, is so that you and I might understand how sinful men can be reconciled to a holy God. Now this is because we are a Reformed church. This is the Reformed understanding of of what the point of the Bible is, redemption. But it can be one of these things that we can lose sight of. This is why, if you've been following along in our story of redemption series, that series that is only online, you can find it on our website or on YouTube, we've we've been answering this question of what is the point of the Bible and looking at each individual book of the Bible and seeing how redemption is at the heart of each one. We've been going through this now for a year. This is something that, that I started for us, but really for me. Because as a pastor, I've been so encouraged to look at a macro lens at the overarching storyline and to, and to see how redemption's at the heart of each and every book, of each and every person, each and every story. To see how you and I in 2022 can be reminded and can rest in the fact of knowing that redemption's at the heart of it, of it all. The thing that we can get from Scripture is to know how you and I as sinful humans might be reconciled to a holy God. Well, currently... In that series, if you're not following along, you can find that on our website under the media page. We're in the prophets. We're looking at the major and the minor prophets. And the prophets is an interesting phase in Israel's history. Because it is doom and gloom all the way. The prophets were there for one purpose and one purpose only. They are there to... to, to, describe for Israel the sin that they're in and to let Israel know what God is going to do about their sin. And the prophets are in a difficult time because Israel is losing it all in the prophets. They're losing their city, Jerusalem. Their king is no longer going to rule over them. They're losing their freedoms because they're being hauled off into captivity. They're losing their wealth because nations are coming in and, 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 and laying siege to their country. And they've lost it all and they're being hauled away into captivity. And the question that the prophets ask and answer is the question that Israel is thinking. How did we get here? If you can think about the story of Israel, it's this story of a nation that was brought from nothing and was given the, in their minds, the pinnacle of their nation. If the Bible were to stop at Joshua 24, that's the last book of Joshua, you would think that it was smooth sailing for the nation of Israel. I mean, think about their history. It starts with Abraham. 
a no-name guy with no children in Ur. And God calls him miraculously, chooses him from all of the other people. It could have been anyone else. Chooses Abraham and says, I want you to go to a land that I will give to you and all of your descendants. Now Abraham's going, but I don't have a, one son. How am I going to have a... How can I have a uh, nation out of no sons? Well, God miraculously gave Sarah and Abraham a son, Isaac. And from Isaac, there was Jacob. And from Jacob, there was Israel. And we get to see through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob and through Israel how God used this one nation to grow into many. And we can see them in captivity in Egypt. And we can see them be thinking, all is lost. God has forgotten us. We are in captivity and slavery to the nation of Egypt. And through this nation, we can see the power of God save this nation. Save Israel. Through a means, not of themselves, because it's through plagues. And it's through the splitting of Red Sea. And it's through miracles. And it's through wandering, following God. And they get to the other side of the wilderness and they cross into the land of Canaan. And they think this is the land that God has given us. And therefore, they think to themselves, what's going to happen? And God gives them this land. And yet they had everything at the end of Joshua. But the prophets, the story of the prophets happened. Why is it that a nation that was given everything, a land, a name, a hope, a God, ends up in captivity. Well, the reason they fell into that predicament is because the nation of Israel needed to fit into the world that they lived in. The nation of Israel didn't like that they looked different from their neighbors. The nation of Israel had an inability to simply trust in God and in his law and in his way. And because they couldn't do those two things, they fell prey to their own sin. Now, before we jump into the prophets, because we're going to Ezekiel 34. How, how did Israel actually get to this point? As I said, it was because they couldn't trust and they wanted to fit into the world and they couldn't just simply trust in God. And they demonstrated this perfectly. In 1 Samuel 8. You don't have to, to turn there. I'm just going to tell you this story. As I said, this is all introduction. You have to know the kind of the story from a macro lens in order for us to understand what's going on in Ezekiel 34, in order for us to understand what's going on in 1 John 10. What happens in 1 Samuel 8? The nation of Israel is in, is in Canaan. They have conquered all of the all of their neighbors that were in the land of Canaan when they crossed the Jordan River. They got to see the walls of Jericho fall down. They got to see uh, the people of, of Ai be destroyed. They got to see all of these battles that they should not have won. And yet God, through his power, uh, he allowed them to win them. And they got into 1 Samuel 8 and they started looking around at all their neighbors. And they started to talk amongst themselves and say, we don't look like them. We can't participate in the same um, events as they do. We stand out among our neighbors and we don't like that. Because you know what Israel didn't have what their neighbors had? A human, physical king sitting on a throne. All of their other nations, they could participate in who had the best king award. They could have this competition of who, look at what my king has done. Look at how pretty my king is. Look at how, how much money my king has. Look at the palace that my king has. Look at, at the armies that my king does. Look at my king. 
And you, they could compare the, the, the strength and the beauty and the awesomeness of the kingdom based upon the king. Well, Israel didn't like this. So Israel went to Samuel, the prophet, in 1 Samuel 8, and asked something that was absurd. Samuel, give us a king. Why was it absurd? Because Israel had a king. It wasn't a human king. It was the king that created the human king. It was God who created everything. Israel wanted to be compared with the earthly materialistic stuff. They wanted to fit into the world. And yet their king made the world. And he went to Samuel. And Israel went to Samuel. And they said, give us a king. And Samuel went to God and said, they want a king. And God gave them a king. But he gave them, but he allowed Israel to pick the first king. And what's that first king that he picked? Well, they picked the good-looking train wreck. They picked the tall, rugged, handsome, handsome bachelor that they thought was going to, to win this who has the best king award with all of their neighbors. They picked Saul. They picked what they thought the world was looking for and expecting. And you all know how that went. It's a train wreck. And then Samuel picked the king that God wanted. The short, scrawny shepherd boy who came from nothing, but in the end did it all. Not because of his power, but because of God. Because it was David who conquered nations. It was David who fortified Jerusalem. It was David who accrues the wealth and the status, and he became the famous king of Israel. It was David who was faithful to God's word. But guess what happened once David dies? Israel's faithfulness leaves them. And they go on this rampage in the nation of Israel where it's one bad king after another. It's one bad priest after another. It's one moment of turning from God after another. And it gets them into the prophets. The prophet that I want to focus in on is Ezekiel. I told you the backstory so that we can understand Ezekiel as a prophet. Ezekiel is a difficult book to read. Ezekiel was a sorrowful prophet. Because the book of Ezekiel, while it is large and can be intimidating, is simply this. It is vision after vision being told to the people the harsh realities of their sin and the offense that it has towards God. It is one reminder after another to the people of Israel. Here is what you have done to anger the Lord. And why is this being written? Because Israel, while they went from their heyday of being the superpower in their, in, in, in their region, went from being conquered by Assyria and being hauled off into Babylon. Went from a few hundred years prior saying, this is going to be your land. You can solidly set your footing here. All of a sudden being hauled off and the people were wondering, God, why have you forgotten us? God, why have you allowed this other nation to come in and conquer us? God, why are you not stepping in and doing something here? Ezekiel as a prophet is given to Israel so that they can know what happened. They can know why they're in Babylon because Ezekiel is written to the people in Babylon. It is, it is vision after vision, oracle after oracle of saying, this is what happened. You see this book clearly declares judgment because Israel was clinging on to the false hope that they had that they were strong enough. They were wise enough. 
that they could both have one foot in the world and look like their neighbors and at the same time stand with God. And yet Ezekiel is also a book of hope because it points people in their despair to the true hope that they have that is found only in God. That brings us to Ezekiel 34. And I want to share with you one of the visions and one of the oracles that God gave through Ezekiel to the nation of Israel. And this vision oracle is shared not to a people that is at their highest moment in life, but is at their lowest moment of life. It's being shared to a people who truly are sitting in despair, asking the question, what happened? How did I get here? And just listen to what it says. We're going to go through the whole chapter of 34. And this is going to be a lot of reading, but this is important. Or most of the chapter of 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves... Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, and you close yourselves with the wool, and you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost ones you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on the high hills. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Who are these shepherds that Ezekiel and God is talking about? Who are these people that he is calling out? It's very clear that when Ezekiel goes to tell the nation of Israel why they've landed up in Babylon, why they've lost it all, that the person that God is indicting are these shepherds. But who are these shepherds? These shepherds are the spiritual leaders of Israel. These shepherds are the priests and the Levites. These shepherds who are the people that had the word of God, had followed after God, and yet they had lost sight. And instead of being good shepherds, which cares for the sheep, they were bad shepherds because they used the sheep. Because they were more focused on building their own lives than on following Christ. Because they were willing to cast aside people, the people of God, in order to protect and build themselves up. Because they were more concerned with themselves than with God. They were put in charge of God's sheep and they squandered their responsibility. I mean, here again, verse 6. This is what it says. My sheep were scattered. They wandered off all over the mountains. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. This is God having his heartbroken because he's looking out at the sheep of Israel and saying, you've lost it. You squandered it. These people were here for you to care for and you have just squandered your responsibility. Think back to why this book was written. This book was written to tell Israel why they landed in captivity in Babylon. This book was written to a people who their heads were spinning Wondering, how did we get here? And it might be so easy for us to think, the person that you need to blame is the sheep, right? 
You need to blame the individual person sitting in the pew saying, well, you should have tried hard enough and you should have done more and you should have believed harder. But no, where does the fault lie? The fault lies with the shepherds. You didn't do your job of calling people back. Now, this is where this book is harsh and, and, and is scary, frankly. But at the same time, even in the harshness and, and, and in the, with it being frightening, there's hope. Because the chapter continues. Therefore, this is verse 7. You shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I, de- as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there is no shepherds, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep, and no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. But I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. We're the sheep. And it can be so easy for us when disaster comes for them to go, Are you going to forget about me, God? God, even though I'm in Babylon, is, is now, is all is lost? And yet God, even as he's indicting these shepherds, his abounding love is seen. Because he ends all of this rebuke and goes, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths and they will not be food for them. I mean, I think of Deuteronomy 30, 31, 46. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be in dread of them, for it is the Lord who goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The sheep all of a sudden go, wait, God's, God's not. God's going to go with us. God's going to be with us. He's not going to leave us and hear what the Lord is going to do. 34.11. Thus says the Lord God. Behold I... I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Hear that? I, I myself. That is the most emphatic way of saying, God is saying, I'm going to do it. He could say, I'll do this. No, he doubles down. He goes, I, I myself will do this. I'm not going to leave this to the hand of some other servant of mine, of some other shepherd of mine. I am going to do this. I am going to search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep and has been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I just want to stop. I know probably most of us, maybe there's somebody in here, have never been a shepherd. I don't see a whole lot of farms around Brentwood with sheep and where you have to go off into mountains and gather your your animals. But for these Israelites... 
Shepherds were just commonplace, and they were actually the lowest of the low. Everyone understood what the role of a shepherd was. The role of a shepherd was they were going to have a select number of animals, and they were going to walk with them everywhere they went, protecting them, guiding them, giving them the food and the water that they needed. There was not going to be any fences that that, um, bound them in. Rather, this shepherd was just going to lead them in the wilderness, in, in the countryside, caring for these sheep. These Israelites had the mind of the shepherd in their minds when they're hearing this. They understood what this role was. And so here Jesus or God is saying, I am going to guide you. I'm not going to leave you. You're not going to be lost from me. I am going to be the shepherd that you need. 14. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And they shall lie down a good grazing land, and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, again, hear this emphatic statement, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak and the fat, and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Notice the comparison. You had the should-be-good shepherds of the nation of Israel who, who used the sheep, who abused the sheep, who was trying to take the sheep for their own to build up their own kingdoms. And yet, here we see the good shepherd. The shepherd that's of God. Here's not going to abuse the sheep, but is going to care for them. He's not going to leave the lame to themselves. He's not going to leave the weak to their own strength. He's going to take them and bring them in and guide them. So the the weak sheep out there just saying, I can't do this on my own, does not have to fear being lost because the good shepherd is going to take him. Just one last section. Verse 20. Therefore, says the Lord God to them, Behold, I... I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. It shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. If you receive this letter while in Babylon, thinking all is lost, God must have rejected us. God must have turned his back upon us. God clearly is angry with us and therefore we are ruined. When you receive this letter and you hear these words, this would make your heart sing. Because as a a sheep of God, you would think to yourself, God has not forgotten me. I have a hope still yet. God is going to come in and give me everything that I need. And here are these people saying, I want to be led. I need somebody who's going to know what to do. I need a good shepherd. And look, look in 23, what God through Ezekiel says. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, I the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. 
when this prophet, when this book was written, David had long been dead. Like imagine getting this letter in Babylon and hearing words like that. My servant David shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And you go, but David died. David, we, we all know that. That was the heyday of Israel. David died. Who's, how, how in the world is David going to be the shepherd over me? They didn't know. I'm sure they got this. Okay, Lord, I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know through whom this, this hope is coming. But, but David's dead, so I guess we've got to wait for a new David. And wait, they did. 600 years, in fact. Because it was 600 years until a man would come and be called the son of David. It was 600 years until a man would come and say things like, For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. It was 600 years for somebody to come and, and to declare to all who are weak and weary and heavy laden, Come to me and I will give you rest. It was 600 years until somebody came who declared, I'm the light of the world, and if you walk in me, you will never walk in darkness. It was 600 years for somebody to come to finally answer the question, who's the son of David? I share all of that. I know it was a very long introduction because I want you to hear these words the same way that the weary pilgrims heard them in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, wondering, God, when are you going to fulfill your promises? Look at John 10. This is Jesus standing in Jerusalem, looking out at these people. He says this. This is verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just that the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay my life down that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What does John 10 offer us? It reveals to us who this good shepherd is. It reveals to us who that shepherd will be. It's, it's, it is David, but it's the son of David. It reveals to us that person who is not going to scatter the sheep, but call the sheep in. This section in John is a beautiful picture, is a beautiful metaphor of who Jesus is. And it's such a beautiful metaphor that what we want to do in this series in John is to stop for a couple of weeks and look at the, the beauty and the complexity of what it means that Jesus is the good shepherd. The life and ministry of Jesus was marked by a division over who people say that he is. 
We've seen this in the Feast of Booths. We saw this even beforehand. We're going to see this even more. Frankly, that division still exists today. You have some people saying that he is a liar and that he is a lunatic. And you have other people saying that he is Lord. In this whole Feast of Booths that we have had, you've had people going, you must have a demon, you must be crazy, you actually can't be who you say you are. And before Jesus walks out of Jerusalem during this feast, he offers one more explanation. And he offers an explanation that the religious leaders should have seen coming. One that the religious leaders should not have been taken aback by. Why do I say that? Because the religious leaders had scripture. They had the Torah. They had the Psalms and the Proverbs. They had the prophets. They knew this. What they stood on, the, 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 the pride that they had in their heart was, we know the scriptures. We know what the Father said. We know what the prophets say. We believe all of these things. And yet when Jesus came, there was constant questions of, you can't be this guy. Well, Jesus leaves no doubt in their minds to say, you're looking for that shepherd to come. That shepherd that Ezekiel 34 talks about. That shepherd that's not going to scatter the sheep, but he's going to call the sheep in. You're looking for the person that's not going to use the sheep to build his own ministry, to fatten his own wallet, to make a name for himself, but he's actually, he's not going to use the sheep. He's going to die for the sheep. Who is that shepherd? I'm that shepherd. John 10 contains one of Scripture's best and most beautiful metaphors. And like all other metaphors in Scripture, it helps us to grasp the full weight of the truths that might otherwise slip through our fingers. It's easy for Jesus to stand up, or it could be easy for Jesus or even me to stand up here and go, Jesus is a really good Savior, you should trust him. What John 10 demonstrates is the weight of that trust, is what Jesus does for us. You see, this metaphor is complex. It has many different elements. And over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is look at all of those different elements. We're going to look at the fact that we are sheep. And I'll be upfront with you. What I'm assuming about us, because we can assume it about sheep, is that we are weak, frail, and lost. We here at Community Bible Church have a low view of man. And the reason we have a low view of man is because Scripture has a low view of man, because God has a low view of man. And what I don't mean by, and what I mean by a low view of man is we have a view of man that views us as unable to save ourselves, incapable of bringing ourselves to God, in need of a shepherd. Again, these Israelites knew about sheep. They had sheep all around. They knew that if you leave a sheep on their own, they are going to die. And here we're going to look at through this beautiful metaphor and parable how Jesus takes us as needy sheep and cares for us. But we're also going to see how Christ is our good shepherd. That he is our guide. That he is our Lord. That he has given us everything that we absolutely need. We're going to see how Christ is the door to the sheep pen. We'll get into this next week of what the sheep pen is and really kind of what the, what the imagery we should have in our mind as we approach this parable and, and, and what uh, Israel knew that might, we might not about how the sheep pen operated. But Christ is the door to the sheep pen. There's only one way into the sheep pen and it's through him. And then we're going to look at the weakness of the thieves and the robbers and the shepherds that are, are there not to point you to Christ, but are there to 
fill their own pockets and their own stomachs and to use us. And in all, what we're going to see is that this image of Christ being the good shepherd beautifully demonstrates God's grace and mercy for us all. Prior to us closing this morning, though, I want to just focus in on one other thing. Why does this parable come here? Why does it come at the end of the Feast of Booths? I think it's this. Consider the question that we've been looking at throughout this whole feast. The question is, which kingdom are you following? Are you in the kingdom of man? Are you in the kingdom of God? And we talked about that in order to have a kingdom, or when you have a kingdom, you have a king, or you have a ruling authority. And so when you're looking at which kingdom are you following, you're also asking the question, which king or which authority are you following? Jesus is still focusing on that. He's still asking the question, who are you following? But instead of asking, who's your king? He's actually asking, who's your shepherd? Who are you allowing to lead your life? Who do you want to lead your life? Who are you trusting in? Throughout this description of the good shepherd... That's the question that's going to be on our minds. As a sheep, who are you following? You might want to be the shepherd. You might want to say, let me take my life in my own hands. Let me hold the reins to it. Let me be the shepherd of my own life. That ends poorly. Because a sheep can't be a shepherd. Only the shepherd can. This morning, as we turn our attention towards communion, I said... This is going to be introduction. This was all introduction. We get to see the evidence of our shepherd before us. But unlike other shepherds who use the sheep to their advantage, our shepherd loved us to the point of death. I mean, we, we got to read it in John 10. We got to read it in Ezekiel 34. But here, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us. We've all turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him. Who's that him? The good shepherd. The son of David. Christ. The iniquity of us all. One of the images that's going to come out of this and I don't want to steal the thunder of what the pastors are preaching through this, so um, sorry, Jeremy, if I'm going to steal some of your thunder from next week. One of the images that's going to come out of this is who in the world would ever die for their animal? Like, I know that you say that you've got fur babies, but it's not a fur baby. It's not a baby. It's, it, it's, a, it's an animal. That's still here. Why in the world would God die for his creature? Why in the world would you see these sheep who ran off in their own stupidity and, and, are, and are guilty of their own sins and say, I'll die for that? The good shepherd does. The good shepherd, when the wolves come, does not run like the hired hands do, but stands and takes the full brunt of that offense. And so when God comes... And his wrath is being poured out upon sin 
because he is a just God and cannot overlook sin, and sin and God's wrath has to be satisfied, what does Christ do? He says, I'll take it. I'll die for it. I'll be a shepherd like none other. I'll lay down my life for the sheep. I'll take on the sin of them all. That's what we're celebrating this morning. Is that our good shepherd, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection were for us. His sheep, whom he didn't need but died for anyway. And so, if you're here this morning as a child of God, placing your faith in the finished work of Christ, and we get to take these elements together in a moment, have your soul rejoice, knowing that we have hope, not because of what we have done, but because of what our shepherd has done. But I would ask this. If you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you're here this morning and it's offensive to hear the reality that you are a sheep in need of somebody else. If you're here this morning and thinking, no, I control my life, no one else controls it. If you're here this morning and this idea of faith and salvation are are new to you, I would ask that you don't partake of these elements because we don't want them to confuse you. Because they're not here to save us, they're here to remind us of the salvation that we have. And so if you just let them pass you by, I would appreciate that. But then after the service, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you so that I can share with you the realities of our good shepherd and I can share with you what faith in Christ looks like. With that, let's pray. We can take this together. Lord, thank you for... Thank you for the fact that when we were lost, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were wandering hopelessly around, not able to save ourselves, that you came to call us to yourself, to gather us, to be your sheep. Thank you that as a, as a good shepherd, you don't leave us in our despair. Thank you in our, it, as our good shepherd that you bind us up when we are weak. Thank you that we can n- not have to lie about our, our brokenness, about our inabilities about our weaknesses. We can be honest with you because you know it already. And you chose us not because of our perfection, of our, the work that we had done for you or even will do for you. You chose us because of your great love and mercy for us. Lord, help us as we look through John 10. Help us as we look through the Bible that we would be overwhelmed by the knowledge that while we were sinners, you died for us as our good shepherd. Just be with us now as we take your table. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.